Hello there. Welcome to Deadly, the hottest talk show about sin since 1210 CE. This is your host, Alex Ennis, and today I'm reading with meeting with Ruth Ost to talk about the sin of sloth. Ruth Ost is the senior director of Temple University's Honors Program, and she's a true jack-of-all-trades. Her studies and career center around humanities, namely English, history, French, art, and religion. Before earning a PhD in religion from Temple University, Ruth previously worked as a high school educator. She also taught at University of Rochester and right here at Temple. She's here today to talk about a sin that she specially requested to speak on, sloth. Welcome, Ruth. Thank you, Alex. <laughs> I'm so excited to have you on the show. I'm excited to be on the show. Good. So if you have you listened to the show yet? I decided not to listen because I didn't want to be prejudiced by what I heard. I oh, just okay. thought I'd better do it raw. A prudent yeah. choice. So if you haven't listened to the show, which is fine. Uh, I'm going to listen to all the episodes, but I, I didn't you. want to be influenced. I believe you. Uh, the way that we start every episode, which I'm excited for you to hear, is by asking the guest how they, as an individual, define the sin that they're assigned. So how do you define sloth? I was thinking about giving you an example okay. of, of what I think about uh, sloth, uh, which I consider uh, to be a desperately terrible sin. Um, uh, just some words that come to mind are tepid, diffident, indifferent, apathetic, along mm. with lazy. Lazy is the cheap, off-the-shelf version of what sloth is, but I think it goes far more deeply than, than what people might construe as simply lazy. Uh, I'll preface this by saying I was at Barnes & Noble recently buying a book, of course, and and as I was approaching the counter, I saw there was a little toy right on sale, right smack at the counter, in other words, where you're vulnerable yeah. uh, to the, the slightest provocation of something adorable just staring in your face, especially at holiday time, and there was a little darling sloth to be bought. And I said to the clerk, so I just don't get it. When did sloths become so popular and so cute? And she said, well, I think it's because they're lazy and relatable. <laughs> and I thought, well, that that's really interesting, the relatable part, especially the la the lazy part, I don't know. Um, so I, so those are, are some quick and dirty at the, off the top of my head. I've, I've more to say about the source of the name sloth. But for me, sloth is that there was a show at the Aldrich Gallery in Ridgefield, Connecticut, a few years ago, and it was there were there were seven different art galleries in different states, and it was about the seven deadly sins, and the show at the Aldrich itself was specifically about sloth, and I thought it's a good way to sort of sum up, in a sense, what I think about sloth. What the artists did, and their names are um, Matt Biggert and Nina uh, Najali. They went around and did documentaries of the other six sins at the other galleries. Mm -hmm. And for their project, they decided to have people live within the sin and not Ooh, to view the sin. So they set up Bobomatic Barca loungers so you could tilt back in the air-conditioned splendor of the Aldridge Art Museum, serve gin and tonics, and you could watch all the other sins without having to bother to go to any of the galleries. Wow. And I thought that was a lovely way to kind of think about sloth as you're just there in your Barca lounger. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to exert yourself. You can just sit there and take in somebody else's work and not have to participate much yourself. Years before that, when I gave a talk at a, at a Rotary Club in Plymouth, Michigan, my topic was the importance of art. And when I got there, I had a slideshow, but they forgot to order a slide projector. So it was Ooh. hard to talk about art without a slide projector with slides. This is an ancient history, as you can tell from the words <laughs> slide projector. <laughs> But after it was over, 
one of the people said, well, I, I think you can see a lot from the car window. And I said, well, say more about that. And they said, well, when we got to the Grand Canyon, my kids thought it was just fine to look out the car window. You didn't have to get out of the car to actually look at the Grand Canyon. And I thought, I didn't think then, ah, oh, sloth, but I did think then, oh, dear God, this is just so tragic to think about doing everything kind of secondhand. You just don't really care. In fact, if I had to sum up in a funny way, one word that to me bespeaks sloth, it is this word. Whatever. That word, that's really why I want to talk about sloth, because that word whatever just suggests, I don't care. I could care less. Do what you want. I can't be bothered. Uh, a kind of, of void of love, of enthusiasm, of zeal, of affection. And it's so spirit depleting for people around you when you say that. I think that's what the sin of sloth really is a lot about, is the, the effect it has on other people around you, because you just, you're just too lazy. You can't be bothered. You let things go. And other people around you suffer as a consequence of this. And I don't mean that you didn't clean your room that morning. I think sometimes that's about defiance. And besides that, I don't think right. I'm a sloth and God knows I could use to clean my room. But <laughs> but I think it, it's it's that word whatever where you just could care. I could care less. Make up your own mind. And then it's so hard. And you just want to say, well, just give me just a little something. Mm-hmm. It's not like at lunch where someone says, what do you want for lunch? And I go, like, I don't know. And what are you having? It's it's more this apathetic, diffident, I just don't care. Right. No, it's more whatever. than indecision. It's more than a decision. It's almost a little bit passive aggressive, actually. Mm-hmm. It's like, and it's off-putting. This is one of the things that always interests me about when I go to places with people. It's very important to go to, to places with people where you don't have to apologize for your enthusiasm. But if you're sloth-like, then you just deplete the joy of other people's experience. Whatever you're doing on your own, fine. But but it, I think that that's one of the reasons I find this. It's like having a student in class who's completely, I just could care less. And there's no enthusiasm about it. And you just think, oh, if I have to look at that face, not at all interested in that I need to, to try to interest. I just didn't like that when I was first teaching high school. Yeah, Gary. I can imagine. Gary. His name is Gary. <laughs> I would say his last name on air, but who knows? He may be listening. It was in Elyria, Ohio. Gary, if you're out there, just listen to this. <laughs> and I remember uh, I was teaching 10th grade, and there was no curriculum for 10th grade, not a single solitary required book. In fact, there was nothing for them to do. And I was brand new teacher, first year. I'd just been studying Shakespeare and, and, and medieval literature, and uh, it wasn't going to go down with 10th graders, at least not right away. So yeah. I was struggling to find something to make them find the world interesting. And I worked so hard. And this kid, Gary, was just nothing interested in me. Could never get a smile at him. Couldn't get anything out of him. And finally, one day, he was sitting at his desk. His notebook was up. And he looked really absorbed. Hmm. I was thrilled. I thought, finally, finally, I got through. I got past the diffidence, the laziness, the sloth-like behavior of the student in my class. So I walked down. The, the aisles were really narrow. It's not easy for me to do this subtly, but he was very absorbed. And I, I got just behind him, and, and there she was, Miss April, spread across the page. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, on a side note, apart from the story, I confiscated it, took it down to the principal. The principal said, oh, Ruth, I haven't read this issue yet. Note the word read. I haven't <laughs> read this issue yet, and I never confiscated anything from a student ever again after that. But... <laughs> But I, I was, but I realized I really hadn't gone through. I really hadn't gone through to him. There were other issues, but it's that person who, you know, for all you're trying, uh, leaves you feeling joyless yourself because you just can't seem to get through. They just can't be bothered. That's a great definition. So there you go. Through anecdote, yeah. I love that. Okay, good. Uh, so the definition. So I've been working off the definition supplied by Dante. 
yes. uh, because often they're the most straightforward, kind of the easiest to follow for everybody listening at home. And Dante defines love just as a lack of love. And I think that that's exactly what I've been talking about. Yeah. It's a lack of love for the world. It's a lack of love for others. Not sufficient love, insufficient love for others. And yeah. I think Dante's got it right. I mean, the Divine Comedy really is all about love. Certainly Beatrice leads him on, and it, it is a commitment to love. And, of course, the greatest of love is the love of God. But along the way, when you think about the people that Dante admires, uh, these are people who have, uh, even in the Purgatorio, when he's talking about sloth, the people that he despises are the people who can't be bothered. They, uh, he, you know, he's, he's on, on the case of Moses and the people who didn't follow him. Mm-hmm. Never mind that Moses didn't get to the Promised Land, but that's a separate topic. But the people who just were skeptics about Moses and really where did he get off thinking he could lead people and didn't bother, to tr- the, and these people didn't try to follow. Similarly, the Trojans, he really had issue with the Trojans who didn't follow Aeneas to found Rome because they couldn't be bothered either to go. And, and here's Aeneas who leaves, uh, leaves, not in Dante, but in, in the Aeneid, uh, the burdenless burden, taking his father out of the burning fires. And he would never have done anything that wasn't full of, he was the antithesis of lazy. Yeah. A burden was never a burden, and he was not about to be sloth-like and leave, leave his father behind. But in, in the, the people that, that Dante's admiring are the people of, of zeal who care about things. Now, the Virgin Mary, we can we can vote for her probably. It's hard to take her down. It's hard yes. to say anything critical about her as a as a as a role model and as a uh, somebody who was really uh, worthy, but the other person that he admires is Caesar. And when you think about the the people who are in hell, in the cold bottom of hell, in Cerberus's mouth, uh, it is Brutus who betrayed Caesar. And why would you not follow Caesar? And uh, with the, the zeal that Dante would have thought was was appropriate. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, Mary actually, for listeners who have not also read. Purgatorio. I don't blame you. It's Inferno is so much more fun. <laughs> oh man, Purgatorio is tough to get through. Yeah. But Dante in Purgatorio supplies examples of people who are guilty of each sin and people who are representatives of each virtue, mm-hmm. each counter virtue for sin. And the Virgin Mary shows up for literally every counter virtue. Yeah. Um, she was well loved by Dante. Can you think of anybody in 21st century who would be in that role? Who would be in the role of specifically zeal? No, the the role of no matter what oh, no what the, the what virtue you're going to celebrate. Who who in 21st century world would be that person who like, you could trot out? The best of the best. Yeah, I mean maybe Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa was the first person who came to mind. Um, I don't know enough about Pope Francis, but from what I understand, he's a really great guy. I'm not as Catholic think of anybody as you know yourself. Anybody I know myself? Yeah. Well, that's hard. Just, just wondering. I no, I I don't think that I can come up with anybody immediately. All the people that I really look up to and admire are uh, definitely guilty of some kind of sin. And oh, um, you know, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, Ruth, the whole uh, like this is the last episode I'm recording, and so I've had just countless conversations, not countless, precisely eight conversations about the sins and what really i've learned from the podcast is that you cannot find somebody who's not guilty of sin hence the great line that jesus speaks which is uh, he who is without sin cast the first stone yes and nobody was pitching stones that day yeah exactly and so i i can't think of any people that i know who are completely like the virgin mary in dante's eyes who can be a representative of each counter virtue, but I don't think I would want to. 
I think that it's the ability of the people I know and people just in general to be imperfect that makes me love them. I don't know if I would love somebody who is perfectly emblematic of all of the counter virtues. Well, your chances of having to love them are slim. Yeah. <laughs> right. You might run into them in the honors lounge. I don't know. Could be Jackie Everett, for example. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Admit it. Yeah. I know. So kind of moving on to a more specific conversation about uh, sloth. Although all the conversations that are sin-specific end up being about all the sins because they're all so entrenched within each other. One of my one of the things I'm curious to hear your opinion on is whether or not lack of love in the form of sloth is sustainable. And conversely, is the opposite sustainable? Is a complete and utter zeal sustainable? I don't I wouldn't put zeal against sloth, even though that's that's sometimes how it's characterized. Extremes really are not very useful in thinking about things because, as you were saying, it's more measured than that. It's really the all-or-nothing school of logic. Usually it's much yeah. more varied than that. Um, is your question, is love sustainable? No, a lack of love sustainable. So I'm just, is sloth I don't sustainable? Even, I don't know. Some people make a real go of it. Yeah. <laughs> for, for that matter. What I've been thinking about since I, you asked me to pick a sin, and I don't know why I blurted out sloth. I think sloth, if you look at it from a, a medieval point of view, really we're talking about religious religious kind of sloth, which yes. was the fear of falling asleep and not noticing the glory of God and getting distracted right. from this. And there, there's the noonday demon where the monks and the hermits look at the sun and think, oh my gosh, this day is never going to end. And in fact, I was reading just to, to because I, I like this topic and I love the Middle Ages, that I was reading uh, Peter Damiani in the 12th century talking about one of uh, his, someone he knew who was so fearful that he would fall asleep, that sloth would overtake him, the tiredness would get to his bones, hmm. that he uh, would hang himself in his monk's cell by his arms, pulled backward, you know, like back behind your neck, back behind your back, so that he would not fall asleep. Oh, wow. Because to fall asleep would be Sorry. to rest but not rest in God. This is what Augustine would say. To rest but not to rest in God. That's the thing you have to ward off. And I think we've moved, clearly we have moved from that idea, moving into the secular idea of, of laziness. Can people live without love? Is that what you're asking? My question is, can people live a slothful life for a long period of time. Theoretically, could somebody live an entirely slothful life? Or alternatively, could somebody live an entirely energetic life? It'd be hard to live a whole slothful life. Yeah. I mean, I think if you're a little kid, you don't get a, it's, it's pretty hard to get a running sloth start when you're a little <laughs> right. kid. Sloth can ebb and flow. I think there are, there are reasons. I mean, sometimes sloth gets confused with depression. And there yes. are there's and I think that's a mistake to think that somebody who's just apathetic or different about things, it could very well be that they are severely depressed and that they need help and this is not, you know, anything by choice, um, or that they really are just kind of um soul-sucking human beings, to, to, yeah. uh, to put it one way. Uh, so I think it's important to, to separate the idea of people who are just lazy and could care less and can't be bothered with people who really have, have who are depressed, who really actually need help. And I think sometimes those two get confused. Sometimes people are thought of as, you know, you're, you're just lazy when actually there's a real problem there that could be solved because people wouldn't prefer sometimes some of these kind of somnolent uh, ways of living life. So I think that's, it's hard for me to imagine that somebody could be slothful all their lives. It yeah. seems like they're, but but it's hard once you've committed yourself to being lazy or to having attitude. It's very hard to snap out of it. In fact, there's a really interesting children's book called Spinky Sulks by William Stieg. 
And Spinky just gets himself into a sulk, and he doesn't know how to get out of it. And his sister admits that Philadelphia is the capital of Belgium. His grandmother makes him <laughs> his favorite cookies. Everybody tries to get him out of the out of the funk, and he out of the sulk, and he wants to get out of it because he's bored with being in a sulk. But it's so much part of his identity that he can't figure out how to get out of it. And then miraculously, circus comes to town, so he can make pretend he's a clown, and so he can break the spell. But I think sometimes we get ourselves into these situations, and it's really hard for us to think our way out. Even in the, some people think of Marceau, the great character in, in Camus' L'Etranger, as the archetypal sloth, as a kind of poster child for sloth. But even he, at a certain point, shows energy at long last, at the very end. Of course, it's for horrible reasons, for sure. Somebody finally gets to him. But the question is, are you willing to put yourself in a position where somebody can actually get to you? Yeah, and that's such that's put, putting yourself in such a vulnerable situation. And if you're sloth like, you're really very careful not to put yourself in a vulnerable situation, which is actually what the animal's all about. Because the animal sloth um, moves so slowly that the prey cannot get him because he doesn't. He's not noticeable in movement. Because if you're in the wild, it's that you've moved that brings the attention of the predators. Yeah. But they move so slowly can't even be noticed like covert ops yeah it's like covert ops yeah exactly can you have zeal all your life i think the opposite of zeal isn't necessarily sloth even if you're joyous the the chances sorrow and grief are and joy are on such a continuum they're not even a continuum you you aristotle's asked what does it mean are you happy and he says how can you even assess that till the end of life you you how can you do that just this week as an example we had a very, very dear friend of honors, David Zitarelli, died in his sleep. And that very same day, Seth's baby was born. Wow. So it was such a blow to hear this beloved man who had been playing with his grandkids earlier that day mm-hmm. uh, die of a heart attack. And such a beloved person he was. People took extra calculus because of him. They just adored him. And here he is he is departing, and at the same day... Now we have this joy of this new baby, little Dylan Rosie, Seth and Kate's little daughter, Dylan Rosie. So it's, I, I think, is uh, zeal sustainable? Maybe not the word zeal. Mm-hmm. Maybe the word opposite of lazy, maybe is energy. Can we maintain yeah. a kind of energetic spirit, whether you're celebrating life or you're celebrating sorrow? I think, yes, that can be sustained. I think people have troughs where you're just really down and exhausted. Yeah. Where you've had one you've had too much, either too much, you know, you come to the point where you're just in tears and you don't even know why. Yep. Because you're just worn out from emotion. But the opposite of that is not to to start going on Tinder or watching Netflix for hours on end or for that matter going to the gym. That is a kind of an oddly sloth-like performance. It yeah. looks it looks energetic. It looks like you're getting something done, but it's actually not necessarily that at all. So I think, I don't know if this, I'm sort of meandering in this, thinking about this That's idea okay. of love. But you no, know, I think zeal, it, in fact, the word zeal is a little dangerous because mm. I, I, a zeal is like a zealot. And I don't, I think zealots get in the way of actual love. Because if you're a zealot about something, it really usually means that, that you're cutting other people out of your story. If you're a zealot and no one else, you know, you're, it's all yours. Yeah. Or if you embrace other people, it's got to be all theirs, too. So I think zeal is a little bit dangerous, tipsy-topsy, t- a little bit too much over the edge for the opposite of sloth, to be, z- to be zealous. Yeah. I have some thoughts about what you said. Uh, multiple thoughts, Go which for I'm it. going to summarize. So all the way back to your point about sloth as uh, 
potentially getting mixed up with depression, we read a text called the Ankrena Wissa uh, in this class this semester, which was a text meant for anchoresses and anchorites, which mm-hmm. were these super devout people who lived in these little cells attached to churches. And they devoted their entire life basically to solitude and worship of God. So they would live alone in this little cell. Somebody would bring them their food, and that's the only kind of human interaction they would have every day. All their extra time was supposed to be spent worshiping God and thinking about God. And so this text advises anchoresses, uh, female uh, of these kind of like hermit-type worshipers, advises anchoresses how they can avoid the sins. And in doing so, the text characterizes each sin as an animal Hmm. and sloth is not sloth i'm not sure that they really knew about sloth i don't think i've been reading about that i was curious about this where where this came from because yeah they're not they're not native (laughs) to england Yeah. yeah yeah so um sloth is characterized as the bear of heavy sloth in the bear of heavy sloth one of the things that the author of this text warns against is hopelessness And that totally struck me as shocking because that to me is something that a person has absolutely no control over of hopelessness. That's not necessarily something that's within their ability to avoid. Sometimes that feeling just comes on to you and you can't you can certainly decide how to interact with it and overcome it. But you can't avoid it in the way that you can avoid other things. And so sloth was definitely um, ascribed to people who suffered from depression during this time. And the sins actually were very much that way with a lot of different disabilities. If you were born with a physical disability, uh, you were seen as a product of sin. So if you were born with, let's say, a physical deformity, they would say, oh, your parents must have done something really sinful. Mm -hmm. And so obviously there's a lot of awful discrimination in the Middle Ages in all sorts of ways. But particularly with mental illness in sloth is, is very, very normal. Um, for those two things to be tied. Another thing that came to me was you were talking about, well, I think that there's a lot of vulnerability that you have to risk when you are trying to get out of a slothful episode. And it made me... If you want to. If you want to, which hopefully you do. It made me think of an excellent song, which I'm going to send to you after, after this recording session, and I would love for all the listeners to listen to, called Loser by Garfunkel and Oates. I'm trying to think of the way that the lyrics go. You are such a loser, good for you. It's something that a lot of people can't do. Trying is hard, that's why people don't do it. Losing is hard, they can't make it through it, but not you. You're such a loser. And it's all about how even just getting up and doing anything is a win. Even if you lose at whatever you're trying to win, it's still a success for you because you've actually gone up and done something and you're better immediately than everybody who's on the sidelines watching you do it. And that led me into this thought about our modern understanding of sloth as laziness. And I think it's really dangerous in the same way that I think that you think that zeal as a counter virtue is dangerous. Because as you're describing sloth and you're describing the counter virtue of sloth, Both of them are potentially deadly in their consequences if you commit to them fully. And I think they're deadly in their consequences only if you regard sloth as laziness. Which I think is a minimal. I mean, to me, that's such a small understanding about what sloth is. 
Yeah. I mean, lazy. What I'm interested, why, why sloth has become, the, I saw the World Federation of Wildlife calendar and sloths are on the cover of it. Yeah. So it's like all of a sudden sloth is the hit animal of the year. And when I saw it at Barnes & Noble at the, at the checkout counter, I thought, boy, we are really hitting the sloths. So what is it about that? And this is a different angle on this, but I think from a modern point of view, there's a kind of need to celebrate if not laziness, slowing down. And I yes. think that's why the sloth has already be kind of becoming this totem animal for the, our time because we're all so hyper. We're all so busy. I, I remember when the microwave oven came in. Now this is like, <laughs> I am so old, listeners. But I remember saying to my students, so what are you going to do with all this time you saved by microwaving your food? Yeah. And everything is on speed. It's, and I'm not talking drugs here. I'm talking about everything is, goes so fast that there's a kind of desire to say, let's allow ourselves to be a little lazy. In the United States, people do not use up all their days off. In Copenhagen, if you were, if you were a Dane, you'd have to take your holidays. You, it's required. And they're not, have to, you don't have to be embarrassed because you used up your vacation time. Here, if you if you don't use up your vacation time, it's, it's seen as a kind of virtue. Yeah, and I think that sloth is making a comeback, not in this medieval way, or not the way I'm talking about, but as the actual animal saying, "Let's slow down a little bit. Let's renegotiate things. Let's." I was reading about sloths and about how there's this perfect balance of energy with them. It's kind of like almost climate control. The <laughs> amount of energy they need is the same that they use, so there's no waste. And I'm thinking, we just we're so busy. Even now, you know, when I was little, we used to be able to roam in the woods and we were told to come home by by sundown for dinner. And now it's play dates. It's every second of everybody's time is booked. And I think maybe there's a cause to celebrate being lazy. And I, that doesn't mean checked out, but I mean to kind of I think one of the things that might be seen as lazy now, even just binging on Netflix, which I confess I did for the first time in my <laughs> life this past well, over Thanksgiving weekend, is a kind of need to step back and to get some breathing room because we're just suffocating from activity, from yeah. a kind of Ben Franklin on steroids. Because Ben Franklin, the emblematic figure of Philly's icon, is he's the perfect example of keep busy, do not stop. And of yeah. course, busy is the devil's you know, workshop. And I mean, laziness is the devil's workshop. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that the sloth has become a very interesting talismanic figure for now because lazy is something very oddly that we're not good at. The idea of just sitting still and musing about things or letting allow a play period where people are not governed by some activity that they have to do, where there's actually some some time just to be silly or to do one of the things um, when we're interviewing people for a job in honors, one of our one of our advising questions is, "What are you doing when you lose track of time?" In other words, where are you when you're so absorbed in something and it's not being lazy necessarily? It's, cer it's certainly yeah. not. And nobody's answer has been, "I'm watching television," because that's numbing. This is about absorption, and to me, sloth has to do with more numbing than it does absorption. And it's and finding the answer to what it is people are doing when they become completely absorbed. And they've stepped out of their everyday frenzy and they've allowed themselves to sink deeply into something. You know, I think we crave that. And certainly the anchorites had that. They were yeah. fully absorbed. Not that we wish to go back into hermit's caves, but there was a kind of permission to be fully absorbed in something. And we don't really have that permission now very much. Yeah. I really like the idea of potentially replacing zeal 
as the counter virtue with absorption. Yeah. That's great. Creative absorption. Yeah. And I also really love the idea of sloth, our new definition of sloth in a modern context as this equilibrium, like you were talking about with the animal. With the animal itself, thinking about the actual animal. Um, yeah. Giving, giving the animal its due a little bit here. By the way, if you want to see what they look like, skeletally speaking. Um, oh, they're fascinating. They're yeah. ad- they, the Wagner right free here Institute. on Temple's campus, uh, free, uh, Wagner Free Institute of Science has has taxidermed sloths in the collection, and they're just two, one two-toed and one three-toed sloth, yeah, just so you have a variety. They're so fascinating to look at. Yeah. I actually, I was giggling to myself a little bit when you started telling that story about the sloth, because I have you a have sloth that calendar one? at home. Oh, dear. I don't know if it's the same one. Uh, it was gifted to me by a friend, and I hadn't expressed a particular affinity for sloths, and she had just gotten it for me as a gift, just to be like, hey, I but saw But did she know it was a sin? Ah, uh, yeah, probably. She's yeah, she probably she um, knows you. Yeah. She knows you like sin. I mean, um, you're interested in sin. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but I've been using it over the course of the year. And of course, now it's almost over. But I have been cultivating a new love for sloth. I yeah. wasn't as fascinated with them as I think culturally most people are right now. But as I've been going through the months, I'm like, oh, God, they're so cute. I do really love them. And um I like hadn't anticipated really actually talking about sloths. No, the thing. actual sloth. I mean, it's, it's strangely just, relevant. It's strangely relevant. It's really. I mean, to me, it's really interesting. And I sloth for all the reasons I was describing earlier. Bartleby the Scrivener. I mean, a people I prefer not to. Although that's a very complicated. Who is Bartleby understand. the? In, in Melville's story, the Bartleby the Scrivener. Who, what is Melville's story? I personally don't know, but I well, know Mel, that people in, listening probably don't well, know. Well, our listeners might. Uh, Bartleby and Merceau, the character in L'Etranger that I was mentioning earlier, are often thought of as kind of examples of sloth. But actually, I think both of them, in a way, get a bad rap for that. Bartleby, is, his classic line is, I prefer not to, whenever the, the <laughs> law, he's, he's a scrivener in a law office on Wall Street. And whenever the person in charge asks him to do something, he says, I prefer not to. And at the beginning, he he does what he's supposed to do, which is copy documents and so on. But when the boss asks him to do more things, I prefer not to. I prefer not to. And the boss gets really annoyed because it seems like Bartleby is sloth-like. I'm just too lazy to do this. But what happens is, in a way, it flips on itself because it forces the lawyer who's hired him, the boss, to think about what his own life is and what his own values are just because Bartleby is so staunch in saying, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. So in a way, Bartleby becomes this odd antihero in yeah. this story. But the line, I prefer not to, has kind of given him some cachet as a sloth, <laughs> sloth-like, <laughs> maybe a bad rap. But it's an interesting to look at some of these literary characters in this way, or or, or Merceau from The from the Stranger. Yeah, well, thinking about slothful characters who are like the strange anti-hero theme. My favorite play, hands down, is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead dead by Mm -hmm. Tom Stoppard. First of all, everybody should read it. It's about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, the two kind of uh, like foot pages in Hamlet and their experience of Hamlet's story. And really the whole shtick for the whole book is they don't really ever get anything done. They don't do anything of meaning or significance. Kind of at the end of the play, you you get that that's the message, right? right? Like that nothing is significant and you have to generate meaning in life. But I think about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and throughout the play, they're doing things. They're playing games and delivering messages. and They're busy. They're busy. They got work to do. Yeah, yeah. they sure do. Mm-hmm. And so they're, it makes me think of... Uh, 
like busy hands is that busy hands of the devil's playground yes something like that. it's something like that yeah <laughs> yeah so many devil's playgrounds yes Can't so keep up with many them. Oh. but i think about them and they surface level appear very busy but mentally there's nothing really going on that deeply and so i'm wondering where and See, Ruth, that's, I that's, know you've read this, so I'm curious to hear. Like, where, do you do you place that kind of behavior at sloth? I I think there's you're, you're touching on something so interesting to me because it's this idea of being busy. As long as we look busy, yeah. To me, that even though busy looks like it's the antithesis of sloth, I don't think it is at all. I think being busy can be completely meaningless. Hmm. Like, there's 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 a term in education, busy work. Yeah, that's that's if you had to think of something people absolutely hate it's like don't work. give me busy work. Yeah, I have plenty to do on my own. Don't do this assuming that some uh, that that's going to be therapeutic or educational or pedagogically sound, whatever. It may not even be sloth, but I think a lot of time people protect themselves from actually feeling anything by being busy. Yeah, I think it's it's such a protective shield. And sloth isn't that. A sloth is for me has much more negative connotations. But I think sometimes when you see people who are really busy. They're protecting themselves from seeing what is really there. We see this with students who, who think if they study 18 hours a day and keep themselves busy, that somehow they're doing what they're supposed to be doing instead of slowing down, sort of taking this in, you know, really consciously and knowing what they're doing. Yeah. I actually had a side note thinking about busy and how this can be used. And I was remembering a story of a friend of mine who went to University of Michigan to law school there. And she said that people wanted you to believe like, let's say that I am ton- done studying and it's it's 11 o'clock at night. And I'm going to get a good night's sleep. Yeah. So I put on a sleeping mask, but I leave all my lights on so other people think I'm still staying up. So they stay up and study because oh it's competitive. <laughs> wow. Now, I don't know if that's fair or true, uh, but I, I, I remember the story is very vivid to me. And I thought, wow, this is when sloth takes over. You know, you don't want your eyelids to be heavy because yeah. you need to stay up. You need to learn all this stuff instead of saying, I need a timeout. I need a, I need a break. And even with staying busy, it is staying busy is such an effective way of keeping yourself from doing what you need to do. I'll give you an example myself from my recent history of my own life. <laughs> I had a project to do. I had done all the prep work in the summer. I had gotten the project. I agreed to do this project. It was uh, a tenure and promotion issue from another university. And I'd agreed to do this. And I got the huge tenure file. It was somebody tenure, but it was promotion to full professor. I had the file in the summer and I read everything. And I just, for whatever reason, I was having so much trouble getting myself to sit down and actually do this, partly because I took it so seriously and I was kind of traumatized. I thought, oh my gosh, as if I could make a break, which is I knew better. I knew that wasn't the case, but still I felt a responsibility. It's like if I'm writing a recommendation for a student, I'm going to throw my heart into it because I don't want to be the one who slowed it down, even though I can't win it for them. But I found myself ironing. I was washing my kitchen floor. I was doing all kinds of things to keep busy, to keep myself sort of pretend busy. Mm-hmm. Uh, knowing full well that I was not, that this was all distraction. This was yeah. a way to keep out. But I think busy, Robertson Davies wrote this really interesting piece. He's a Canadian author. I don't know if you've read his stuff, but I think you would just, you would like his books. He was giving an address. He went to prep school as a boy, and he was invited back years later to address the girls' prep school, the, the one that all the boys dated. And so he was thrilled to be back. He said it's the first time he could ever be in the girls' dorm, and he was thrilled. And he was saying to them, in the old days, you could say that you were going to pray, which gave you time to be alone, and nobody would look askance because you were going to go pray. You were going to go to the chapel and pray. And he said, now, 
he said people will just look at you oddly like seriously is that what you're going to do yeah and he was advocating for stepping away and taking time to meditate and, and at the end of the day kind of think back over your life which you would have done if prayer were a normal part of your life, at least in the in the tradition that in which he was raised and which was what was typical of that school. I thought that was so interesting, so unsloth-like. It might look like you're slowing down to do something, but in fact, you're giving yourself some breathing room to actually process. That's a very contemporary word, to process what you yeah. get through, but at least to reflect on, on your life so that each day, it's not that you ascribe large meaning to it, but that at least you witness your own day. You're yeah. a participant in your own life. You're not an onlooker on your life. You're not waiting for your parents to have looked at your life, or the honors director for that matter, yeah. or or Alex Ennis for that matter. Yeah. You're looking at your own life. And I think that lazy gets such a bad rap because it, it looks like some people who are really doing things that are contemplative, they're just lazy, that yeah. they're not doing their work. But in fact, they are doing very hard work because they're trying to delve into what it is to contemplate things and sort of give meaning to their lives and think about what they're doing to other people as well. Yeah, I really like that, particularly because I think that that culture is everywhere and particularly at, like on a university campus, it's very pervasive. And one of my best friends, Duncan, who was on the podcast, I always admire him because he uses every minute of every day. He wastes no time. So if he is walking from his house to my house, which takes a total of two minutes, he will put in headphones and listen to a podcast or listen to a song somebody asked him to listen to. He will. There is always something moving. And by virtue of being close to him and observing that, I have also started to become that way. And recently, I've been taking a step back and it's natural for me now to put on headphones between classes or walking home, walking uh, to campus and start listening to anything, news, podcasts, music, anything. And recently, my headphones broke. So I've been walking, taking these silent walks and actually have found myself doing that kind of reflective, meditative thinking that you're describing that this guy was promoting. And it has been very fruitful for me. And now I've been actually noticing more when people, people will tell me, I can't sit in a room by myself and just be silent. I can't do it. I need something to be happening. And I think that that gets to like a fundamental resistance to really reflect on our lives and not necessarily be critical, but be analytical in thinking about who we are, thinking about our day, thinking about how we're developing as people. And I think that you're right from the outside, that would be perceived as slothful. If I just went home right now and laid on my bed, looking up at the wall, just thinking, if somebody walked in, they'd be like, Alex, you lazy piece of garbage. Right. But I could be intellectually, really rigorously generating like action. And so I really like that. I like that a lot. And the same way that our episodes start by asking everybody the same question, we also end by asking everyone okay. the same question. So the question for you, Ruth, is, is sloth deadly? I think sloth is deadly. All right. Say more, please. I think it's deadly because I think sloth is emblem. Sloth, uh, since you're going to edit this, uh, this is yeah. good. So I'm just thinking. <laughs> you can think. Yeah, you can think. I can think about this. Actually, that's one. Of, that's really an interesting point too. Is this kind of urgency to, you know, be on jeopardy and answer it as right. fast as you can and beat everybody else out? It's like no. Actually, 
processing it a little. We're, we're obsessed with quickness. We're obsessed with busyness. That's why I like to ride the 23 bus, because I like the contemplative aspect of it. But I do think it's deadly in the sense that you've robbed yourself of even of, of an existential appreciation of life. It's probably the deadliest of sins, because I think it's the closest to actually being dead. Oh, Ruth, that's great. I don't know if you know this, but I love existentialism. I think it is infinitely interesting. I didn't realize how closely it was connected with sloth. Well, I think uh, it can get confused. I mean, I think sometimes sloth looks like it's sloth instead of really it's an existential crisis somebody's going through. I mean, it's Sisyphus. Sisyphus in, in Camus' The Myths of Sisyphus, I assume you've read that. I have not. Okay, well, in Myths of Sisyphus, Camus says the only really important question is why don't we commit suicide? Ooh! And, and, I and by the Camus is really good. You know, a Sisyphus is punished by having to roll this this yeah. huge boulder up a hill, and every time he's get it to the top, it rolls down, and you have to roll it up again. And it's yes, we do have to roll it up again. It's not hopelessness; it's that this is this is our task. We need to. We, of course, it's going to roll down again. But we we are born, we die. This is what I mean about sloth being deadly that we have to be able to have the courage to roll that up again. Even if we know it's going to roll back down again, what is our choice? You know, we still have to to make meaning out of our own lives. And I think a slo- someone slothful doesn't do that. And for me, that that is the equivalent of death. Thank you so much. You're welcome. For being on the show. I was very excited to record this episode, and it delivered. Good. It's <laughs> lots of interesting time. We have much more to say about yeah, this. Yeah. If I could sit here for a whole day There's and talk much about more sloth, about I would. This, yeah. And this is not a slothful discussion. No, it's not. So, uh, so that wraps up our conversation about sloth. Thank you so much to Temple University's Honors Program for allowing us to use their space and equipment, to Ben Webster for our theme song, and to Dr. Carissa Harris for her academic support of this project. And to our listeners, keep sinning. <laughs>